0: Uh, man, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here today. Uh, this is an amazing turnout for a holiday. So thank you all for that. Very, very much. I'm very humbled by that. I'm going to tell you that uh, looking back at 2022, I also would really like to express my sincere gratitude. Uh, to Faith Covenant Church, because, you know, 2022 was a really hard year for Faith Covenant Church in a lot of ways. Uh, you, know, we, you, know, uh, you know, the staff shortages that we experienced and other things that were going on, uh, it's just, you know, it's really a stressful time. And a lot of y'all are aware, you know, the, the issues in my family with my mom's health, etc., and everybody at Faith Covenant Church has been so warm, so generous, and so helpful, and I just can't say thank you enough for everything that you've done uh, this last year. And I also want to say that I'm looking forward to 2023 with great anticipation, because I think it's going to be a great year. I really do, because 2022 was tough, all right? So it be really good. But I just want to tell you real quick, that's knocked over a candle. Wow. Yeah, but it's, it's fake, so that's All right. <laughs> Uh, but so thinking about 2023 and i I like to i like to you know kind of look for a word that might might be a theme for 2023 you know for every year and uh, i shared this with the staff a few weeks ago that the, the the word this year is the word defend I just really feel like there's a real importance right now for us as the church to defend the truth, to defend what we know to be true, uh, to defend what we know is reality. And so we're going to be doing that. And I thought what we need to do is we need to go through the book of Romans, all right? The greatest book in the Bible, arguably the greatest book ever written. And so we're going to go through Romans slowly and methodically. And we have a really clever title for this series Romans. All right, so we're going to call it, all right, we're going to call it Romans. That's all we're going to do. We're just going to go, we're going to go through Romans, we're going to call it Romans, and we'll give application every day, and we're going to start with that today. But yeah, that's what we're going to be doing for this next year, and we're not going to deviate from the book of Romans until we finish the book of Romans. So I don't know how long that's going to take. It's going to take us a long time, but I'm really excited about that. I really am, because I really believe for the sake of our kids, for our grandkids, we really need to be defending what we know to be true. All right, so Romans, and we're going to be in Romans uh, chapter 1 here in a moment, but you might want to turn to Acts chapter 5, because we're going to begin there today. Now, I read a fantastic book last year. Oh, I got to say one more thing, by the way. I'm sorry. Uh, this pulpit, isn't this so nice? Matt Swaggerty made this for me. Yeah. And uh, I, I never, ha- I keep forgetting to say anything about it. So uh, Matthew made this for me. because you know, I was always putting my water somewhere, my Bible in another place and all that. And he just felt a burden to make me a pulpit. So this is so great. So my water's in there and everything. My Bible's up here. And so I really appreciate Matthew doing that for me. Okay, I really do. So I read a great book, a fantastic book about the Roman Empire this past year. And I didn't realize, that the first century was a very tumultuous time in the world, especially in the Roman Empire because the Roman form of government was rapidly changing I'd always thought that I'd always grown up thinking that the emperors were always so powerful, but in actuality it was Julius Caesar who was a military ruler who declared himself emperor of Rome and he began to consolidate power to himself and he empowered, you might say, the executive branch of the Roman government over the representative branch. And so the emperors were gaining power while the Senate was losing it. And so there's this huge struggle for power in the Roman government. And we all remember, you know, Et tu Brute, you know, he was was assassinated. But that didn't help anything because then, you know, uh, more and more emperors came along after him and they were more and more corrupt. And on top of that, there was a great plague uh, going on within the empire. There was a great famine going on throughout the Middle East. There were wars being fought in faraway regions. So there were tremendous pressures financially and otherwise on the government. And while all this is happening, the emperors, the Caesars, they began to demand that they would be worshipped as deities. And they were having temples built to themselves and shrines and things like that. And as power left the Senate, the power left the people. And there was really no check on government power. Introduced into this mix, oh, by the way, many thought leaders in the Roman culture warned them, hey, our civilization is crumbling. You know, morally, socially, economically, our civilization is falling apart. It sounds very familiar, doesn't it? It really does. In the midst of this... There's this new and fast-growing movement. It's called The Way. We call it Christianity. But Jews believed that The Way was blasphemy. The Romans believed it was treason because they refused to honor Caesar as Lord. And we introduce into this mix one of the most influential people in world history, Paul the Apostle. Paul profoundly changed the world's religious and philosophical landscape like no other man. His influence ranks among the greatest intellectuals of all time. He ranks up there in terms of world impact with people like Socrates and Aristotle and Plato. His influence has been so profound. Because he introduced into the world an entirely new paradigm of what it means to be a human being. All right? Now, uh, how many of you are going to have black eyed peas today? All right, good job. All right, we are, okay? I'm not superstitious, I'm semi-stitious, okay? And so because I am semi-stitious, we are gonna have black-eyed peas today, all right? Because it's the new year and you wanna have good luck, okay? Uh, We do that. Uh, My son is getting married on January 13th. Really excited about it. That's a Friday. He's getting married on Friday the 13th. And I thought it was so funny. They had no trouble getting a venue, catering, photographer, none of that, all right? That was wild. Wide open. That's why they chose the date, because it was wide open. Everybody was available, because nobody wants to get married on Friday the 13th, right? Because why? Because we're kind of still superstitious a little bit. In the world where Paul was living... Most people believed their lives were controlled by blind luck and fate, but also like the whims of, you know, the capricious whims of these random gods. There were hundreds and hundreds of gods. There were gods for everything, and they believed that certain places and certain people had magical power, all right, which is the basis for every Disney movie we've ever seen. And Paul's greatest work was a letter he wrote to the Christian community in Rome. We call it the book of Romans today. He had spent 10 years planting churches all throughout, you know, Turkey and and the eastern side of the Roman Empire, and now he was looking west. Paul wants to go west, and he says, I want to come to Rome. And he was was such an influential man, he's like, I want to preach in the heart of power in the Roman world. He said, and then, he said, I hope to go on from there and go west to Spain, to regions where no one has ever been. And what he wanted to do, he wanted to introduce himself to Rome's Christianity. Uh, There was a large Christian community in Rome. He had not planted it, but it had sprung up there. And he wrote this letter, the book of Romans, to explain how he preached, how he proclaimed the gospel, the message of salvation in Jesus. And so what he did was he took the facts of Jesus's teaching his life, his miracles, his crucifixion, his resurrection. Combine that with his understanding of the Old Testament law, the Old Testament sacrifices, the prophets, etc., etc. And he organized all of this into a doctrine, a philosophical system, an entirely new paradigm of looking at human life. And so what you're going to read in the book of Romans is a book that's very carefully written. It's precise. It's painstakingly logical. It's colorful. It's vibrant. It's sweeping in nature. And the Roman letter explains the nature of man's relationship to God, man's relationship to one another, and man's relationship to government. Most Christians don't realize this, but the concepts... That the Apostle Paul puts forth in the book of Romans utterly radical and transformative. It was like putting drugs into the bloodstream of humanity because what he did was... He put ideas into the bloodstream that would shape the course of Western civilization. It radically changed Rome, then it radically transformed Europe, and eventually was the reason we have the United States of America. In fact, there's no such thing as the United States of America without Paul's letter to the Romans. Because he introduced four great themes, like I said, into the bloodstream of humanity. They are individual rights, individual responsibility... Human equality and the human right of freedom. Prior to this, those things were never talked about or thought about. But he laid the groundwork for the world that we know today where humanity has flourished. And many of Western civilization's most influential figures have thought of the book of Romans as their North Star. Augustine. Thomas Aquinas, uh, Martin Luther, Charles Wesley, John Adams, who wrote our Constitution, uh, Martin Luther King. In order to understand this incredible book, the book of Romans, I wanted us to spend the day today doing something really different. I want us to talk about the Apostle Paul. All right, so if you would, turn your Bible to Acts chapter 5. And the title today is, Paul, it's the reality of radical change. He starts this letter by saying, I am Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Paul is the central character in the early church. He's legendary for his intellectual output, his stamina, and his sheer grit and determination. You know, of the 27 documents that compose our New Testament Twenty-one are letters, and 13 of them are attributed to Paul. So almost half of our New Testament is attributed to one man. Where does a man like that come from? Well, Paul was actually born Saul, all right? Sometime around 5 AD in Tarsus, which is a prosperous city in western Turkey. Now he was given three names at birth. He was given the name Saul, his Hebrew name, the name Paul, a Greek name, and then Paulus, which would have been his Latin name. All right, so some people say, well, you know, Jesus changed his name from Saul to Paul. No, it was just, that was just his Greek name, okay? That's what it was. Now... The schools of Tarsus were famous throughout the world. It was a a place of great literary activity. It ranked right behind Athens and Alexandria in terms of, you know, this is where you go to get a great education. It'd be something like Boston in our world today. And he received the best education in Greek literature and Greek philosophy in the world up to about age 12. In his letters, he often refers to Greek poets, and he does so with great skill. And he had a reputation as an intellectual powerhouse. One time when he was on trial, uh, Festus, the governor, interrupted Paul's defense. It says in Acts chapter 26, and he said... You're out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you insane. All right, but what is he saying? You're a man of great learning. And he was born a Roman citizen because his father was a Roman citizen. Roman citizen would be, Roman citizenship would be granted to people who were not Italian on the basis of doing some great service to the Roman Empire, such as serving in the military for 25 years or more. So we don't know what Paul's dad had done to get this citizenship, but it must have been something really epic for him to have gotten it as a Jew. And then, despite his Roman citizenship and elite education, he was a very committed Jew, and he was the son of a Pharisee. And at age 12, listen to this, for the students at age 12 he was shipped off to school in Jerusalem hundreds of miles from home and there he went to the school of Gamaliel the greatest jewish teacher of all time and he made great progress and as a, as a, as in this program he would have had to master jewish history all the Old Testament law, the Psalms, and the prophets. He probably had to memorize most of the Old Testament, for sure the first five books of the Bible. And he also would have learned how to dissect Scripture and debate, which would become very, very useful to him later in life. And so soon he was looked upon as one of the most promising and rising young men in Jewish society. And his ambition was to become the best and the brightest in Jewish life. In Philippians chapter 3, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, and of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. And as to the righteousness that comes from the law, he said, I was blameless. Moms and dads, this was the kind of young man that if you had met him, you would have said, That's who I want my daughter to marry. All right. He was spotless. He was squeaky clean, ambitious, driven. He, had, he came from a wealthy family, an elite family, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's only natural that he, had a, he was a fast rising person in Jewish politics. And most scholars believe that he was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, which was a council like the Supreme Court with 71 Jewish leaders who kind of function as the Supreme Court or the legislature for the Jewish people. Because these people voted on matters of life and death. And look what he says in Acts chapter 26, as he was being, you know, uh, there again, he's being put on trial again. He says this, he said, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Think about that. Man, here's a man who's probably a very young man, who has the power of life and death. That gives you a chance, I mean, it gives you an understanding or a flavor of the kind of political power that he had gained in his lifetime. Which brings us to Acts chapter 5. If you would, turn to Acts chapter 5. Remembering now that the Apostle Paul, verse 27, he's a member of the Sanhedrin. All right? And so Peter and, uh, Peter and John have healed a man, all right? And they're, and, and they're declaring the name of Jesus. And they bring this man in before the Sanhedrin. And, having, and look at verse 27. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. And he said, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, the name of Jesus. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. All right, they blame the Jewish leaders. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And God exalted him. To his own right hand as a prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Look at verse 33. When they heard this, they were furious, and they wanted to put them to death. Remember, Paul, Saul, would have been in this crowd. But a Pharisee named what? Gamaliel. This was Paul's teacher as a young man. A teacher of law who was honored by all the people. He stood up in the Sanhedrin and he ordered that the man be put outside for a little while. And he addressed them and he said, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do. Then he basically said, leave these men alone. If what they're doing is from God, you can't stop it. If it's from men, it'll go away quickly. But don't worry about it. Don't do what you're thinking about doing. And so... He calmed the council. They didn't stone Peter. But the Christians wouldn't stop. And we can't help but believe that this just enraged this ambitious young man who believed that he had a, a moral duty to save his religion and his country from this kind of religion extremism, religious extremism. But the, but the sad part is that he himself morphed into a religious extremist. Do me a favor. Look at Acts chapter 6. And you're going to see, the, in, your, in, your, in your subtitles, you're going to see the stoning of a man named Stephen, a deacon in the early church. And when this stoning happened, the crowd could not have performed the stoning without official permission. And that was granted to them by a young Pharisee named Saul. And then you can see Acts chapter 7. Look at verse 54. After the stoning of Stephen, Acts 7, 54. Oh, sorry, this is the stoning of Stephen. All right, they heard heard Stephen. He was preaching. They were furious. They gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Wow. Isn't that remarkable? You know, I don't know if you've ever seen how this was done, but basically they would take someone... And they would find a ravine or a gully, and they would throw them down into the ravine. And then they didn't like pick up rocks about as big as a tennis ball. They'd pick up rocks about as big as a loaf of bread. And you would hurl them down into the down on the person who was stuck down in the ravine. And if you tried to climb up out of the ravine, they'd push you back down in, and they would keep stoning and stoning until you were dead. It's a violent, violent way to kill someone. But Saul believed he was doing the will of God. Verse 59. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he said this, he fell asleep. And look at chapter 8. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. Isn't that a remarkable statement? Saul was giving approval to this violent death of this good man. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Man... Try to imagine the chaos that this young man instigated. Parents imprisoned, people dying, children orphaned, livelihoods lost, communities torn apart, many people losing their lives in the process. When Paul was on trial, he testified, he said in Acts chapter 22, I persecuted the people who followed the way of Jesus and some of them were even killed and I arrested men and women and had them put in jail, throwing women in jail even. That just gives you an idea of the the passion and, and the zeal and the drive this young man had. So people scattered. They had to flee for their lives. But Saul was determined to eradicate the Jesus movement. And he would prove that he was a Jew beyond all other Jews. And he had heard that some of these followers of the way had run as far as 150 miles away to the oldest city in the world, Damascus, Syria. They had taken refuge there. Do me a favor. Turn to chapter 9, verse 1. Mm. I never get tired of this story. (laughs) I really don't. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats. Man, that's a great statement. Against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, did not see anything or anyone. And Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. And so he led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind. did not eat or drink anything. (laughs) Some people have often asked, well, why did did the Lord make him blind? Because it was a physical manifestation of his spiritual reality. He was blind to the truth. He couldn't see the truth. And so the Lord gave him a physical manifestation of that. Look at verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord. The Lord told him, go to the house in Judas on the straight street. Ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. Yeah, he had a reputation already and had traveled so far. He has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up, and he was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. And look at verse 20. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Wow. I never, like I said, I never get tired of it. There is no other event anywhere in history quite like this. It is so unique. This would make a great movie, by the way. Someone needs to make a movie about the life of Saul of Tarsus. I know Ben Affleck and Matt Damon were working on a project, and Hugh Jackman was going to star in this movie, but it kind of fell apart, which makes me very, very sad. It would be a great movie. You know, we have three movies about Barack Obama and three more about Steve Jobs. We don't have a movie about... You know, the Apostle Paul, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, I could go on and on, okay? (laughs) Not really. It just just bothers me so much. Think about this, though. Within days, within days, he goes from being a a religious extremist who's who's just bent on uh, exterminating the Christians to proclaiming Jesus is the Son of God in the synagogues. It's incredible. I want to show you a picture. This is a man named Nathan Bedford Forrest. Uh, You might have seen this picture before. He was a very successful general in the Civil War. Prior to the war, he was a slave trader and a plantation owner and a politician in Memphis. Very young, very ambitious, uh, handsome, hard-driving, fast-rising young man. And he was, a relen- he was a relentless soldier. He was a tactical genius, and he was just filled with a righteous zeal for his cause, which was the preservation of slavery. And he was known as the Wizard of the Saddle for his ingenious use of cavalry forces during the war. He's also remembered for his, invol- his involvement in the battle for Fort Pillow. After the Union soldiers surrendered at Fort Pillow, his troops massacred 200 prisoners of war. Most of them were ex-slaves who had gone to fight for the Union army. After the Civil War, Nathan Bedford Forrest served as the first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. Wow. Imagine one day, General Forrest is riding with his troops And there's a brilliant light, and he falls to the ground. His men pick him up, take him to the medics, and then they can't do anything for him. He's blind. A medic, someone shows up from the Union Army wearing the blue coat amongst all the gray coats. Okay? And he says, I want to pray for General Forrest. God has told me to come and pray for him. And this Union soldier lays his hands on General Forrest, and something like scales fall from his eyes, okay? And he's completely transformed. And he asks to meet with General Grant of the Union Army. And he says, Can I join the Union Army? And General Grant is skeptical, but he agrees to it. And then Nathan Forrest takes all of his passion, all of his grit, all of his skill, his leadership, and then he hurls himself into the union cause. And then two days later, you see him on a horse leading the blue coats into battle against the gray coats. That is the kind of incident that we're talking about here. It is incredible. There is no natural explanation for that kind of transformation. It is only possible by the power of God. No one would ever believe a story like that. But it did happen to Saul of Tarsus. Now, there have been a lot of explanations for how this might have happened naturally. Some people have said that Paul, you know, was riding there. He had a lot of time to think. And suddenly, the apostle Paul, or Saul had an intense and sudden inward conviction. Man, I've been wrong. Jesus is the Messiah. And he becomes so overwhelmed by the idea of it that the guilty felt that he had a break with reality, a psychological breakdown. But then you ask yourself, how does a man who's had a psychological breakdown write the most beautiful words we've ever seen, especially like First Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, you know. Others say maybe there was a, a sudden storm and there was a flash of lightning and then the thunder that was really, really close to him. And he thought he saw Jesus in the panic and the fear. He thought he heard him speak, but he didn't. It was only his imagination. But how does imagination motivate someone to do what he did for the next 30 years of his life? Look at 2 Corinthians 11. It comes up on your screen. He said this. He said, five times the Jewish leaders had me beaten with 39 lashes. Three times Roman officials had me beaten with clubs." Once people tried to stone me to death, three times I was shipwrecked and I drifted on the sea for a night and a day. I faced dangers from raging rivers, from robbers. I faced dangers in the city, in the open country, and on the sea, and from believers who turned out to be false. You see, a person's imagination doesn't motivate them to have that kind of grit and determination. And some people say, well, Saul experienced a sudden fever in his optic nerves. It's called an ophthalmic fever and he hallucinated. He thought he saw a scene from heaven. Unfortunately, for this explanation, uh, he, he, many times he talks about the witnesses who were there and who had to take care of him after this had all happened. So this would be easy to find out, you know, would, would the witnesses have corroborated his story? And obviously they always did. It's impossible for any natural event to explain the epic transformation that he experienced. No fever or no flash of lightning would ever be sufficient to change this religious extremist, the persecutor of the church, into a missionary. All right? Instead of subtracting from their number, he spent the rest of his life adding to their number by every means possible. So real quickly, a couple applications I want to make this morning. Number one. No one is beyond the reach of God. Nobody. You probably heard a cynic say something like this. People don't change. That's true. There's a grain of truth in that statement. If it's left to us, we don't change. We simply can't. We do not have the power or the desire for a deep and lasting personal change. However, on that journey on the Damascus Road, after a powerful and personal encounter with Christ, it just wrecked Saul of Tarsus. Where there had been blind rage, suddenly there was calm reason. Where there had been bitterness and anger, suddenly there was love and compassion. Where there had been religious pride and hubris, suddenly there was humility and brokenness. Where there had been violence, suddenly there came gentleness. Where there had been power and authority, suddenly there was weakness and dependency. And where there had been blasphemy, suddenly there was worship and service. You know, we look at the lives of people like Abraham, Moses, Samson, Peter, and now Saul. We can know with confidence that radical change is possible. God does do miracles in the hearts and minds of people. First Timothy chapter 1, Paul said this. He said, "In the past I insulted Christ as a proud and violent man. I persecuted his people. But God gave me mercy because I did not know what I was doing. But our Lord gave me a full measure of his grace, and with that grace came the faith and the love" that are in Christ Jesus. Do you see what he says there? The juxtaposition. I was a violent man. I was a violent man. And then comes the grace of Jesus. And now he has filled me with what? Love. It is a complete 180 from what he had been before. And I just want to ask you to think about this today. I would imagine there are quite a few parents in here today and you have someone that you're praying for. And you've been pleading with God for a change of heart. Could I just encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 9 and just begin to pray this scripture. It might be one of your children, your grandchildren, a wife or a husband. But just begin to pray Acts chapter 9. Pray for that person to have a Damascus Road experience. And you can pray in faith knowing that radical change is real. It does happen. But there is a warning. The Damascus Road, it's a dangerous place. It truly is. Saul was struck down. He was crippled. And he was never the same. Most scholars believe that Paul's thorn in the flesh was that his eyesight was probably terribly damaged by this encounter. And that was just a way to bring a certain humility into this very, very proud man proud young man. But it's likely that his eyesight was never the same after the Damascus road. And so often in our life with Christ, we plead for transformation. God, please change their heart. Lord, please change my heart. But we want it to be kind of painless and easy. And it never is. It never is. Number two. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life, for my sake, you will save it. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? And so, yes, if there's a physical manifestation of something that brings a person to a new spiritual plane, then, yes, that prayer is definitely worth it. Number two is this those God transforms, He conforms to do His will. All right? Paul says in Romans chapter one, he starts off this letter Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. That word servant is the word doulos in the Greek. And on the ladder of servitude in in Roman society, this was the lowest rung on the ladder. All right, we use the word bondservant for this word. It's an individual who's bound to another person in servitude. A bondservant means bound servant. It conveys the idea of a slave who belongs to his master, and he's obligated to do his master's will. You've Wholly, completely surrendered your will to doing the will of another person, and you disregard your own interests. It means you have no life of your own, no will of your own, no purpose of your own, no plan of your own. You are absolutely surrendered and to, totally devoted to your master's will. Your body is given over to your master. In the case of Paul, he's saying, "My body is given over to my master." Jesus Christ, and my, the purpose of my body is to do His holy will. He said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, You were bought at a price. Glorify God with your body. By using that word do loss, Paul is saying, I have made my choice. I'm a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. I am sold out to his will. I'm willing to do whatever he tells me to do. I'm willing to go wherever he tells me to go. I will say whatever he tells me to say. And I'm willing to serve him for all eternity. That's what that word do loss means. There's a woman named Mabel Williamson who was a missionary in China about 70 years ago. She sacrificed her rights to a Normal standard of living, uh, health, marriage, children, and a family, all those things. She gave up all those things that most of us Americans think of as our rights. And she was human, just like you and me. And she thought a lot about what she had given up, and she struggled with this whole idea of self denial, of taking up your cross and following Jesus. And she wrote a book in 1958 called We Have No Right. And there's a poem in that book, and here's an excerpt from that poem. She says, He had no rights, no right to a soft bed and a well-laid table, no right to a home of his own, no right to choose pleasant congenial companions. His only right was silently to endure shame, spitting, and blows, to bear my sins and anguish on the cross. He had no rights. And I, a right to the comforts of this life? No. But a right to the love of God for my pillow. A right to physical safety? No. But a right to the security of being in His will. A right to love and sympathy? No. But the friendship of the one who understands me better than I myself. A right to a home and dear ones? Not necessarily. But a right to dwell in the heart of God. A right to myself? No. But, oh, I have a right to Christ. All that He takes, I will give. And all that He gives, I will take. I have full right to Him. Oh, may He have full right to me. Mm. I have full right to Him. May He have full right to me. You are looking ahead to 2023. And I have to tell you, I've really asked myself about this a lot. You know, we really want Faith Covenant Church to move forward and Faith Covenant Church to really have a big influence, a big impact on our city. There's a principle of life, it goes something like this, changed people change the world. That's really true for the Apostle Paul, wasn't it? That because he was so radically changed, he radically changed the world that he lived in. And ladies and gentlemen, we look around the world that we we are in right now and you know half of the young people in America are struggling with depression according to Harvard University. We have so many other things that are happening. We say we need the world to change. Change people, change the world. And here's what you need to know. As followers of Christ, we're all on the Damascus road. We're all on the Damascus road. Every one of us is walking down following Christ. And we are all going to be, in one way or another, conformed to His will. God is working in your life and mine to change us. And we just need to know it will not always be pleasant. Sometimes it will be very, very difficult. But I have full right to Him. May He have full right to me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I just want to come before you today. And I just ask, Father, very humbly, but also, Lord, with a very deep realization, Father, that it's a dangerous prayer. But, Lord, I just ask that we'd be a different church, that I would be a different pastor in 2023. Lord, that I'd be a different man in 2023 than I have been in 2022. And, Father, I just ask that because you change all of us that we live in. That is a fresh and new way this year, 2023, to all of us. We ask this in Jesus' name today. Amen. Amen. All right.